Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. It's okay if you aren't ready for kids right now. It's okay if you don't want to be a mom now or even ever. It's nobody's decision but yours. But do you know what's not okay? Not knowing how effective your birth control is. Talk to your doctor about effective birth control options so you can make an informed decision. Tap to learn more. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. The first time I remember hearing about it, there was an Amber Alert issued for it. And at the time, Amber Alerts were pretty, like, uncommon. I feel like you didn't really hear about them a lot. And I didn't realize my connection to the case until like a few days later. It was all over the news and I remember news helicopters and stuff in the in the immediate area because my house was pretty close to where the abduction happened. And my assumption was that like they probably weren't going to be found. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. How are we feeling today, Lex? Jazzy. I'm feeling good. Jazzy. Yeah. That's a nice adjective that I'd like to bring back into the vernacular. I think so. I come alive after like 5 p.m. and we're creeping up on it right now. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's the only thing that really we can't align on is time. I'm like, can we start recording at 6.30 in the morning? And you're like, no, I'm not even human till like 8.45. Yeah. Well, it's just not my thrive time. I, I can be productive, but I can't be charming. Our thrive times are like, uh, what's that called? The um, the two circles going and intersecting. A Venn diagram? Yeah. It's a Venn diagram, but like on a linear scale where we kind of cross in the middle, but then they We get like they a fade. couple hours where we're both thriving at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> and then it dwindles on both yeah, ends. 100%. But you know what? It hasn't stopped us from recording a single episode. I'm proud that we've never missed one during our entire history of being the first degree. And we're here today. And also, you know, if you need more bonus content, we're here on Patreon. One episode a week, bonus, full true crime episode. We just recorded our Patreon for next week. And it is a fascinating case. So well researched. And I like to pat myself on the back. Well, not me. I'd like to pat you on the back. All of us. It's a group effort. But I was moved. I was like, this? I was like, how is there not a documentary on this case? Maybe we'll do it. Maybe we will. It's honestly very crazy. And, you know, I don't want bonus to undermine how great these episodes that we have on Patreon are. It's like getting four more episodes of the first degree. They're not interview driven, but they're driven in every other way. So join us over there. Nobody else's true crime podcasts are interview driven. It's literally only us. For the most part. A hundred percent. No, we're doing more than most people, but I really am proud of our Patreon work too. Me too. Come join us over there. But should we just get into the episode? I think we should. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. (laughs) 
all know when it comes to being victimized by someone intent on harm, we're more likely to be targeted by someone we know, usually in our own family, in our own home. But there are also those times when victimization is simply a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Crimes of opportunity, if you will. Cases that live in infamy, like Trisha Malie, known as a Central Park jogger, or being targeted at random by a serial killer or mass shooter, they're all examples of things which are our worst nightmare. One minute, we're living our lives, minding our own business. The next, we're thrown into the middle of something unimaginable, where our very survival is at stake. When adults are randomly targeted by offenders intent on committing violence, it's terrifying enough. But when minors are involved and they survive, the trauma of their experience is something few of us can bear to dwell on. We begin today's case on August 1st of 2002. Jason Momoa was celebrating his 23rd birthday while fashion design icon Eve St. Laurent turned 66. On the pop music charts, Nelly was at the top spot with his banger, Hot in Here, Hot in Her, Hot in Her, followed by Avril Lavigne at number two, debuting the single Complicated. I love Avril. She's still killing it. And she literally, I mean, I'll believe the Melissa thing sometimes because she hasn't aged. It's crazy. She looks exactly the same. It's frustrating. It's, it's spooky. And frustrating. At the box office, Austin Powers Gold Member was at the number one spot, followed by Stuart Little 2, starring Michael J. Fox. And on a darker note, across the U.S., many felt the country was in the grip of a number of random child abductions. And keep this in mind because it's very relevant to our story today. And the setting for today's case is Quartz Hill, California. Situated in Southern California in L.A. County, the Antelope Valley Ranch community of around 10,000 people is located in the western Mojave Desert, about 70 miles north of the center of Los Angeles, close to the neighboring areas of Palmdale and Lancaster. Set amongst spectacular scenery boasting mountain and high desert views, it's the kind of place with a relaxed, small-town feel and small-town pace of life. Agriculture drove the local economy until around the 1970s in the form of farmers growing alfalfa, almonds, and turkeys. But with reduced water and crop disease afflicting farmers, Quartz Hill began relying on the aerospace sector to drive revenue, with Lockheed Martin and Rockwell International being the main industry leaders. Interesting. And even though the community's role as an agricultural center is no longer, Quartz Hill continues to celebrate its annual Almond Blossom Festival. Wow. Ooh. Our first degree for today's case is named Kelly, who grew up in Antelope Valley near Quartz Hill. This is a part of the state I'm pretty familiar with, and as is Jack. I mean, to get to a lot of road trip places, you got to drive through this part of California. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's like you go from being like, I'm looking at palm trees outside my window, and I know you have them outside yours. You go from yeah. palm trees to like straight up Death Valley Desert really quick. It's yeah. a very sort of ecologically interesting place. The Antelope Valley is in like the northeastern part of Los Angeles County. We're kind of surrounded by hills, so we don't get a lot of the weather that comes in through there. It is primarily desert. I grew up in Palmdale, so it's like a neighboring town to where this happened. In California, we call it a small town, but the tri-city area of Palmdale, Lancaster, and Quartzville is like a half a million people. (laughs) So it's not really small, but I think because we're so close to LA, comparatively, we're small. And a lot of times when people ask me, like, where is that? I 
use two signifiers. Usually the B-52 bomber <laughs> is there, so Edwards Air Force Base. Or if you drive from L.A. to Vegas, we're about like halfway from L.A. to Vegas. And I think the majority of people that live there moved there because the cost of living in the city. So it's like close enough to commute, but like cheaper to live. And I think that's why at least my parents and stuff moved out there. Back in the early 2000s, Kelly had just turned 18 and she was doing what so many other young people do for a part-time job. She worked at Applebee's, supporting herself while she attended community college and was awaiting entry into a U.S. Army after enlisting. So in 2002, it was my first year of community college. So I was living in Courtsville with my mom. It was right around the time that my sister and I had actually joined the Army that I think it happened. We were both on delayed entry for like four or five months. So I think it was kind of in this middle time where I was going to school, but I was like, knew that I was only going to finish this semester out and then be going off and doing army things. I worked at Applebee's. It was my first like real adult job. While working at Applebee's, Kelly had a huge group of work friends, including a cute coworker who we're going to call John. And she soon developed a crush on him. Side note, Almost all of the names in the story have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. Most of them were under 18, so that's just how it's going to be. I don't know if you've ever worked in a restaurant, but it is very much like an extension of high school. There were a lot of like cliques and a lot of drama, but most of us like hung out together outside of work. We were kind of like a closer community. Besides the managers, the majority of us were like somewhere between like 18 and 22. So we were kind of all in this like in-between like we're adults, but not really adults stage. I had like a major crush on him at the time, but I mean, that was a very long time ago. We hung out pretty much either every weekend or every other weekend, just as like a collective group. At the time, John had a girlfriend and we're going to call her Megan. And this actually bummed Kelly out a little bit. So she just wistfully admired John from afar and continued hanging out with him as usual with their larger work friendship group. I never met his girlfriend, but I think they were like relatively new at the time. So he kind of like pulled back from the group. So even though Kelly's crush was unrequited, she still kept relative tabs on him from a distance, not in a weird way, just in a coworker way, because he's obviously a nice guy and someone Kelly works with regularly. But on one day in the summer of 2002, Kelly heard some shocking news that hit close to home. Two teenage girls had been abducted. And Kelly didn't know it at the time, but John's girlfriend, Megan, was somehow involved. The first time I remember hearing about it was like on the morning news because there was an Amber Alert issued for it. And at the time, Amber Alerts were pretty like uncommon. I feel like you didn't really hear about them a lot. There wasn't a lot of information. And I remember there being like news helicopters and stuff in the immediate area because my house was pretty close to where the abduction happened. I don't think they even released a lot of information, just that there there were girls that were kidnapped and it was like in this general vicinity. So I didn't really learn about my connection to the case until a few days later I was working and it was still like on everybody's mind. And I remember somebody mentioning John was supposed to work that day. And of course I was like, I had a crush on him. So I was like kind of looking out for him. I was like, oh, where is he at? And someone said, oh, like his girlfriend was one of the people that was kidnapped out there. When the news initially broke, neither Kelly nor John knew it, but this abduction would be among one of the most harrowing and dramatic Los Angeles County had ever seen. So what exactly happened? Who was involved? Why did this happen? To answer these questions, you know the drill. We gotta go back. 
In August of 2002, our first read, Kelly, got a sudden shock when she heard two teenage girls had been abducted close to where she lived. Specifically, this took place near a local water tower slash Lover's Lane, which it had become. And this lookout was near Highway 14, with amazing views of the desert and city lights below. It's like on top of like a small-ish hill in town where there's like a big water tower. So it's kind of like a spot where people would go and park, for lack of a better word. (laughs) Just before 1 a.m. on August 1st, a man driving a stolen gray 1999 Saturn drove up to the lookout area. He was coming from Nevada, and he had actually carjacked some old people at gunpoint. Right. The driver had taken the car two weeks earlier from a 65-year-old woman in Las Vegas before fleeing to California. And then the driver somehow found himself pulling up towards that lover's lane under the water tower. Already parked up on the hill was a 16-year-old girl we're calling Christina and her 18-year-old boyfriend, who we're calling Ryan, in his white 1980 Ford Bronco. So the driver of the Saturn wasn't there to really take in the views. It turns out he was on the lookout for another car. He had a flat tire and he needed another getaway vehicle stat. And this is for reasons that we're going to get into a little bit later. He approached Ryan and Christina in their vehicle, brandishing a semi-automatic handgun at Ryan. The driver of the Saturn demanded that Ryan, who was terrified of this man and that he would kill them, hand over all of his money and the vehicle. The man blindfolded and duct taped Ryan and tied him to a tree before ordering Christina out of the Bronco at gunpoint. As this was happening, John's girlfriend, 17-year-old Megan, arrived in a black pickup truck with a 19-year-old friend that we're calling Daniel. And in case you were wondering, this is a completely platonic thing going on. The pair were just hanging out as friends. But Megan and Daniel didn't know Christina and Ryan at all. Right. All of these teens were just crossing paths at random, and they had no idea what was coming. So then the Saturn driver turned on Megan and Daniel, threatening them with the gun before trying to tape the couple together in Daniel's pickup truck to restrain them. But when that didn't work, the man forced Megan out of the car, then forced her into the Bronco and duct taped Daniel to his car seat and to his steering wheel. He duct taped the boy. So the boy was sitting in the front driver's seat. He duct taped his hands and his head to the headrest of the vehicle, and he was going to grab the girl out. Leaving Ryan tied up to the post and Daniel in the front seat of his pickup, the attacker took off in Ryan's Bronco with Megan and Christina in the car. So when and how did police learn that all this had happened? When the Bronco drove off, Daniel freed himself and used his cell phone to call home. And on this call, he said he needed help. Daniel's sister, who still didn't realize there'd been a kidnapping at all, then called 911. All of this happened just before 2 a.m. When he kidnapped the girls, he, like, tied up the people that they were up there with. One of the guys broke loose and, like, was able to alert authorities. And we do want to add that there was one research source that detailed another version of events in terms of how the police were alerted to the scene. So the New York Times was the only source that reported that the incapacitated teen boys were found about 90 minutes after the abduction occurred. And they were found by utilities workers who had arrived on the area to service water tanks. But we're just throwing that out there in case all of the other sources are wrong. But it seemed like a big departure, so we wanted to include it in case. (laughs) 
When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. When law enforcement arrived at the water tower after the incident had been reported, they assumed it was just a straightforward carjacking robbery. But Daniel and Ryan, who by this time had also managed to get free, soon gave them the full terrifying story. Daniel described the assailant to police as being in his mid-30s to early 40s with a medium build and dark complexion. The guys told the officers that before their attacker left with the girls in Ryan's Bronco, he poured gasoline over the Saturn like he was going to plan on setting it on fire, but he didn't end up following through. Running the plates of the Saturn, officers linked it to the carjacking back in Las Vegas. But by now, the kidnapper had at least an hour's head start and could be anywhere. It was really 
truly a race against time. They knew that they had stolen one of their cars. So I think the assumption was that they were not in town anymore. Especially because when you're dealing with abductions, statistically, every hour you're gone, the odds of you surviving that abduction decreases. And once you hit 48 hours, the odds plummet substantially. An immediate multi-agency police operation swung into motion. This included a U.S. Border Patrol and California Highway Patrol as 300 officers, five helicopters, and three fixed-wing aircraft commenced a statewide manhunt. Investigators hoped that the young women could be found quickly, safe, and well, but they knew that their guy was armed and dangerous. A $30,000 reward was quickly announced for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the kidnapper. For Kelly, our first degree, the brazenness of this double abduction gave her pause to think about how it so easily could have been her, her sister, one of her friends, or one of her coworkers. These are the kinds of places she and her friends frequented often. This was home. My mom, of course, like she was always worrying about us. And, you know, we're at an age where we're not always the most communicative with where we were at, what we were doing, if we went out or whatever. My town wasn't like the nicest town. So there was like crime and stuff around, but it was the first time there was something that was like that, that was connected to me. I think because of the closeness of where it happened versus where I was at at that moment, once we found out like why he kidnapped them specifically, it was kind of a random thing. So like it could have very easily been my sister and I that were kidnapped. Where we were sitting that night that it happened, which is a pretty safe neighborhood. It was like suburban, typical California neighborhood. You could see outside and you could see the water tower from my mom's backyard. I think that's another reason why I hit really close to home was that like because it was so close to us, you don't realize just how quickly something like that can happen or how like easily something like that can happen. The friends and families of the missing teens were absolutely beside themselves. Despite being strangers to each other, both of them were described as being kind people, intelligent, and well-liked by their peers. Christina was a high academic achiever who had been looking forward to starting her junior year at Antelope Valley High School, while Megan attended high school in Palmdale, where she loved surfing, cheerleading, and dancing. So the location for this case posed a huge problem in trying to track down the Bronco. Firstly, you've got California, which is absolutely massive, so a big area to cover in the first place. Right, but something unique about this case is that it was the very first time in California that authorities used the Amber Alert system. And in this instance, Southern California's gigantic freeway system was something that was actually going to work in law enforcement's advantage, thanks to the high population density. Within four hours of police being notified of the abduction, a description of the Bronco, the license plate, and the police contact number were being flashed across over 300 freeway alert signs in operation at the time, in addition to radio and TV news alerts. Megan and Christina's names, physical descriptions, and images were widely publicized to maximize the chance that they'd be recognized if they were in public. One of the most heartening things about this case is that the new alert system worked. Soon after the first Amber Alert was issued around 9.30 a.m., a sighting of the Bronco was reported about 70 miles east of Bakersfield, California, on the 178 in Walker Pass. At the same time, the L.A. County sheriffs received a tip about someone on the run and started looking into whether this could be their guy. Sometime later, a Caltrans flagman saw the Bronco speed past him and called California Highway Patrol. 
According to the LA Times, the coordinated search effort on the ground had California Highway Patrol working their way westward, while at the same time Kern County Sheriff's officers were moving east, hoping to catch the Broncos somewhere in the middle of the search area. Right, and then around 11.45 a.m., the Kern County Animal Control Officer, driving by a heavily wooded area off Route 178, saw what looked like this Bronco half hidden by some trees on a dirt road. And they contacted the Kern County Sheriff's Department, and they then swung into action, dispatching a helicopter and two deputies in separate vehicles to this exact area. And this is where the story gets even more intense, because this whole time, over the course of this entire manhunt, nobody had seen Christina or Megan at all. Law enforcement had no idea if the women were still alive or even with a kidnapper. So at this point, the stakes were incredibly high. And if the girls were still alive, approaching the entire situation incorrectly could mean life or death. Right. And as the two Kern County Sheriff's deputies headed towards Route 178, they spotted the Bronco. Suddenly, the vehicle accelerated and swerved off the dirt road in a remote area known as Cane Break between Ridgecrest and Lake Isabella. Now, out of control, the Bronco careened down a hill before getting stuck on top of a large boulder in a dry riverbed. Meanwhile, the wheels are spinning. So this is like an intense situation. He was like on some like random dirt road in the middle of nowhere. I think in Kern County, which is just north of Los Angeles County. And somebody who was related to law enforcement saw the vehicle out there. And it was weird because it was in a, like on a random road. Just before 1 p.m., the deputies got out of their patrol cars, guns drawn, and approached the Bronco. One stayed at the rear of the vehicle, and the other made his way to the driver's side. So it's here where the reporting gets a little muddy as to the exact sequence of what happened next. But we're going to do our best to piece together the choreography best we can based on all the sources available. So most accounts have the driver reaching into the back seat and aiming a gun straight at the deputy through the back window, shouting, no way, no way. The man and deputy both fired multiple shots, blowing the window out, with a deputy at the side of the vehicle also shattering a side window. And this gunshot is happening while they have no idea whether the two teenage victims were in the vehicle with the kidnapper. But then, after this dangerous gunfire is exchanged, deputies could hear crying and screaming coming from inside the vehicle. It was only now that they realized with a rush of relief that not only were Christina and Megan still alive inside, but neither of them had been fatally wounded during the shootout. I think when they got there, the vehicle was stopped, but because he was armed, my understanding is that Maybe he, like, tried to face off with them. So in a hair-trigger response, one deputy swooped in, rushed the vehicle, got the girls out, and were ushering the girls away from the Bronco when the kidnapper rose up from the backseat again, getting in position and started to prepare to shoot this deputy. And that's when he was shot twice more, ultimately dying at the scene. He was shot seven times in total. Two of those shots were in the head. There's no question that Megan and Christina were both in grave danger during this entire shooting. They were cowering in the back seat, screaming as bullets whizzed within inches of them through the vehicle. But obviously the deputies didn't even know the girls were in the car at all, and they were shooting to protect themselves from an armed man who shot at them. So as you can imagine, the young women were feeling a whirlwind of emotions immediately following their rescue. They were overcome, having survived such a life-threatening ordeal. That coupled with the trauma of seeing a man die a very violent death right next to them. 
They were so close that their abductor's blood was still on their clothes. But they'd beat impossible odds and they survived. So what exactly happened in those 12 terror-stricken hours? You know the drill. We got to go back. Megan and Christina corroborated Ryan and Daniel's accounts of what happened back at the water tower in Quartz Hill in the early hours of the morning they were abducted. After being forced into the Bronco, bound with tape, and secured to each other with rope, the young women observed their captor had a 38 caliber Colt revolver, as well as a 22 caliber Colt handgun. They drove for about half an hour, during which they were completely blindfolded. Megan and Christina had no idea what was going to happen to them, and of course they were petrified that they were going to die, even though the man initially told them that he wasn't going to kill them. So what made it worse was that their kidnapper seemed to swing quickly from being kind to them, and the pendulum would swing in the other direction, and he would be really cruel and agitated, and he would threaten the girls at gunpoint on more than one occasion. So this is an erratic, desperate person in a desperate situation, so very terrifying. Megan and Christina pleaded for their lives, asking why they'd been targeted in such a way, and they begged to be let go. And their captor responded that he was taking his anger out at someone else on them, even though they hadn't done anything wrong. That's a lot of self-awareness for somebody doing something so insane. I know. And it's like, it's crazy that he would even admit that. Yeah, it is. It's very bizarre. So at one point, he even promised to take them back to Quartz Hill, but as we're about to hear, it was an empty promise. Right. So instead, the kidnapper drove Megan and Christina around for hours down a maze of secluded dirt roads. They definitely got the impression he knew this area really well. But what made it even more chilling was they could tell this wasn't the first time he'd done something like this. And to make things worse, the young women's greatest fears were realized when their attacker sexually assaulted each of them. So like, this isn't a guy desperate. This is a guy who's like opportunistic. Like, let me also traumatize these women, young women, teenagers in a way that they'll never get over. Like what a horrible fucking thing to do. Despite being complete strangers, Megan and Christina knew that they had to stick together if they had a chance of making it out alive. If one of them was in the front seat while one of them was in the back, they would rub each other's legs as a sign of comfort because no matter what, they knew they had to be there for each other. And at one point, when the kidnapper let Megan out to use the bathroom at a gas station, she actually had the chance to escape while their captor was inside buying them food. This was her chance to run for help. But Megan knew if she did, it would be all over for Christina, who was still in the Bronco. And Megan wasn't leaving the younger Christina alone to face probably certain death alone. You know, if if Megan escaped that would agitate him. And she wasn't willing to take that risk and risk Christina's life. So she, it's, it was an amazing thing to do. Instead, Megan ended up returning to the vehicle. And over the next several hours, she and Christina silently communicated by tracing letters on each other's palms. In this way, they hatched a plan to fight back against their attacker. They were determined that they weren't going to die in the middle of a desert without at least trying to save themselves. They tried to escape. And at one point they had come up with a plan So, as it happened, Ryan kept a Bowie knife in the Bronco, which, unfortunately, the kidnapper had already found. So, at one point, it was just after dawn, and the girls noticed that their kidnapper had dozed off with the gun in his lap. I mean, this sounds so terrifying. And he appeared drunk because there was a bottle of whiskey that was in the center console that he'd been swigging from. 
this guy's a fucking menace and like one wrong move ends your life. Like if this guy's drunk on top of all of that, either way, him being unconscious, the two teens knew this was their chance. So they could actually see the man's pulse throbbing in his neck as he slept. And Megan lurched forward, seizing the knife, and they she tried to stab him in the throat. Like she really tried to like take this situation, control the situation back. Like really courageous. So as she was doing this, Christina grabbed the whiskey bottle and struck the man in the face, smashing his glasses. The girls kicked their dazed attacker out of the Bronco and locked the doors after Megan threw the knife at him. But instead of incapacitating the man who still had the gun, the attack ended up waking him up and he was enraged. He pointed the gun at the girls, threatening to kill them if they didn't let him back into the vehicle. And with no other options, Megan and Christina reluctantly unlocked the doors, not knowing what was about to happen. I think he had them held in the back, but I don't think they were, like, properly restrained so they could escape at some point. So one girl punched him in the face to try to break his glasses, and she was successful. Now back inside the Bronco, but bleeding, the man threatened to shoot both the young women and started to count to three. Thankfully, he was so dazed, intoxicated, and fatigued that he passed out after getting to two. And as the man slept, Megan and Christina desperately tried to figure another way out. This guy still had a pistol in his grasp, and they were scared, especially after their bungled attempt just prior. Like, your your confidence would be rattled. Yeah. It was now the middle of the day, and in the distance, the young women were sure they could hear the whir of a helicopter getting closer and closer. They knew this was good, but also potentially very bad, because the man had told them that if police tracked him down, he'd kill them both. Thankfully, as we know, the young women were rescued in the ensuing shootout, resulting in the death of the man who abducted, terrorized, and assaulted them. Megan and Christina were taken to the hospital for treatment and discharged into the waiting rooms of their ecstatic families who had been bracing themselves for a very different outcome. This literally sounds like something straight out of like an action movie. And as we've heard, law enforcement saved Megan and Christina with only minutes left to spare. The clock truly was ticking in this case. And had the cops not ambushed this Bronco when they did, it's very likely things would have had a tragic outcome for the two incredibly courageous women, Megan and Christina. According to law enforcement, the kidnapper was mere minutes away from killing the young women and disposing of their bodies in a place they'd never be found again. And most abductions result in the victim being killed within a matter of hours. Lots of people, including Kelly, assumed the outcome wasn't going to be positive. Even at the time, I realized, like, normally people who are willing to kidnap somebody, most of those things don't end up well. Like, it's very rarely that you hear that somebody is rescued from a situation like that. And because of the nature of where we live, like, it's a desert area, there are a lot of places out there that you can hide that are nowhere near anybody. So I think even at that time, my assumption was that, like, they probably weren't going to be found. Or if they were found, it wasn't going to be for a really long time. Because this is, like, in the wake of, like, you know, Elizabeth Smart and that sort of stuff that was happening. Usually smaller children being abducted. Normally, when the news talks about them, they talk about them as if the assumption is that they're, they're dead. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. So who the hell was this kidnapper and what could lead him to do something like this? Something so terrible and extreme. 37-year-old Roy Dean Ratliff had grown up in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, and developed an extensive criminal record from the age of just seven years old. Before Roy had turned 13, he briefly went into foster care and also lived in a group home. But by his teens, he was committing break-ins and running away. In 1989, 24-year-old Roy moved to California. He was soon arrested for burglary and did two years in a state prison. By now, he'd been incarcerated at least 16 times for theft, drunk driving, drug possession, and felony burglary, and driving with a suspended license. More present time followed, and at the time of the abduction, Roy lived in Rosamond, California, with his wife and her two kids, though he'd apparently been on the run since the previous September. He'd also skipped parole back in July of 2001 for drug possession. And in addition, there is an existing $3 million warrant out for his arrest on charges of spousal abuse and a rape from the previous year after Roy was accused of raping his 19-year-old stepdaughter, which resulted in five charges for sexual assault. My God. Awful. By the time Roy was cornered by the deputies in the dry creek bed, with Megan and Christina still alive in the back of this Bronco he'd stolen— He had no intention of returning to prison. Like, this actually demonstrates how dangerous of a situation we're dealing with. Under California's three strikes law, that's where he was headed. He had nothing to lose. And like the coward he was, Roy chose to threaten the lives of sworn officers and was willing to die in order to avoid accountability for his disgusting crimes. And he was willing to take people down with him, including two innocent teenagers. Nobody really knew his motive or who he was or anything like that until probably like maybe even like a week or two later. It didn't appear to be any sort of rhyme or reason except that obviously he's disturbed. And I think he either had prior cases of sexual assault or a rap sheet of prior deaths. So this was definitely an escalation of that. I think it was the first time I'd heard of something like that that was like close proximity to me. I was within a half a mile of this weirdo and he didn't choose the victims because of any special thing. It was just like they were there. So he, it could have literally been anybody. So as we know, Megan and Christina were discharged from the hospital that same night. But then something happened, which certainly would not fly in 2023. Right. The California State Attorney General and Kern County Sheriff, they publicly revealed the names of the young women who had been abducted and assaulted by this man. They're minors, as a reminder. No consent had been given to allow this news to be released. And then sections of the media took off running with their own fringe, disgusting takes on the story. 
Today, California law prohibits the release of a minor's name in connection with any criminal matters. But the complicating factor in this case was that Megan and Christina's names and the details were already public information due to the widespread appeals regarding their abduction not even 24 hours earlier. Thankfully, the majority of media outlets quickly changed the focus of the reporting in accordance with appropriate editorial policy. Given the new information which had emerged, Megan and Christina's names and pictures stopped being circulated. I mean, I can't believe people have to be told to do this. So in the absence of explicit consent being provided by these young women, to the contrary, this was necessary to protect Megan and Christina and afford them the appropriate privacy, especially since news of the sexual assaults had already been revealed by law enforcement without permission. Like, how are people supposed to heal from stuff when this stuff happens? It's awful. One local newspaper in particular continued publishing the information, arguing that it was a bell that they could not unring, despite it being very obvious that without Megan and Christina's consent, this only served to re-victimize them. The source was the Antelope Valley Press, and what the editor said was that, I don't know how you squeeze the toothpaste back in the tube. Like, it's fucking disgusting. But after all this, in an interesting development, Megan ended up deciding to take back control of the narrative herself. Right. And she began doing interviews on her own terms. And within days, both she and Christina appeared on NBC's Today Show with their moms, holding hands as they recounted their ordeal. There was no shame or embarrassment as the young women spoke openly about their experience. They wanted to use their powerful story to give a message of hope to other young women. They empowered themselves. And Christina later told the LA Times, it wasn't like I was pressured one way or another. It was up to me. My parents said whatever I felt comfortable doing, they were behind me. Me and Megan want to get the message across to everybody to never give up on anything. If you ever give up, you've lost. Whatever obstacles you have, you've got to fight your way through it. It's just retelling the story, and it's not hard to talk about it, but I let everyone know that there are certain things that I will not talk about, and I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. So as the dust settled in the aftermath of the rescue, John, Kelly's friend, eventually returned back to work. Because, you know, the mundane does start again, even after something so tragic. He returned back to work. And I probably only worked there for maybe a few more months before we left for the Army. And he was definitely like a little bit more standoffish. And I think he was kind of worried about her privacy because, you know, we were all teenagers. And I think he was probably like 18 at the time. So people are nosy and want to ask a bunch of questions. And... Because of the nature of the crime, the girls being victims of sexual assault, people might have been asking questions like, what happened? What was it like? How is she? And I think he probably, at least from my perspective, I remember him like not really hanging out with us as much, not really like going out, which I mean, understandable. As the months passed, Megan and Christina focused on their education, doing their best to heal from the trauma of what had occurred. Megan looked forward to attending cosmetology school, and she was also working part time. And in the spring of 2003, both she and Christina, along with other child abduction survivors, attended a ceremony at the White House. President George W. Bush signed a measure making the Amber Alert system nationwide, which went on to become known as the PROTECT Act. Megan and Christina's experience really drove home for Kelly that horrifying things like this, while exceedingly rare, can and do happen. Kelly always knew on some level that people can be bad for no reason. She just never felt impacted by anything so close to home before. I think like 
we went through that period, obviously, in the United States for like post 9-11. And you start to realize that like on a global level, humans aren't great. You feel far removed from it unless you're, you were there or you knew somebody directly involved in it. I don't think it was like news to me that people are crappy, but I think the fact that it happened so close to me, it was such a crazy crime and it didn't feel like it had any sort of purpose. It wasn't like somebody was trying to gain something like they needed food and so they killed somebody as a result of trying to get that or they were surrounded by police so they felt like they had no way out. It was such like a ridiculous situation. Like why? I think the reason those cases are always so fascinating is that there's no sort of rhyme or reason. And I think the fact that he was killed too and you don't have the option to be like, why did you do this or why those people? It makes it even more like baffling. In a heartwarming postscript to our story, the whole experience resulted in Megan and Christina forming a unique, unbreakable, lifelong bond. They are now friends forever, having protected each other and worked as a team during one of the most awful experiences anybody could imagine. As we've said, it's truly disturbing knowing that if someone is determined to hurt you, there's no way to stop them. And this was the case when someone as dangerous and violent as Roy Ratliff zeroed in on two innocent teenagers when he was desperate. They were young women out with their friends, enjoying a summer's evening without a care in the world. And when their lives were turned upside down without warning, they had no idea how it would turn out. All they had was their own courage, bravery, and resilience to get them through. Thankfully, in a world where law enforcement operational systems so often fall short and fail to prevent such crimes, on this occasion and many others afterwards, the adoption of new strategies like the Amber Alert system worked, saving their lives in combination with great police work and the public's help. A huge thank you to Kelly for being our first grief for today's episode. If you are listening and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first grief podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you want more true crime content and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for the first degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by the talented Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Desert News, San Francisco Gate, the ABC News, the Las Vegas Sun, CNN, CBS News, the LA Business Journal, Salon.com, Snopes, and Fox News. And as always, our first three guest is always our largest source. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.